The following program and current presidency does include explicit language. It's Friday, January 12th, 2018. From Slate, it's the Just I Mike Pesca. How is the president doing? Let's do the numbers. Yes, the weather, stormy, stormy indeed. And some of the numbers that the president is talking about is let's up the number of people from Norway. And why wouldn't a Norwegian come wanting to leave the number one per capita income in the world, the happiest country in the world for the United States? The president sells this country pretty well. Massive levels of poverty, crime that's out of control, no education, no jobs, tremendous joblessness. People walk to the office, they walk to get a loaf of bread, they get shot. Here are the numbers. In 2016, over a million people became legal permanent residents of the United States. Of those, the ones from Norway, the count, 362. So why do we get more of them? Because they don't want to come here? The 362 Norwegians are probably not the answer to our immigration woes. If there is a question of Norway and the United States and immigration, I'd worry about it going the other way. Americans emigrating to Norway. In fact, after the presidential election, there is something called the, I hope, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, the Ringerike, Ringerike, Ringerike. It's a section near Oslo in Norway. The Ringerike Recovery Program began to lure Americans who are perhaps upset with, you know, the whole getting shot while you buy a loaf of bread thing. And it was a pitch to Americans to come settle in Norway. I could see the flow going in that direction. So those numbers are not really going to work out for the president. But of course, immigration is his big issue. It seems like he's definitely not going to be able to paper over whatever's going on with the rest of immigration with just teams and swarms of Norwegians. But maybe he can keep out the immigrants he doesn't want through executive action, which leads me and reminds me of the travel ban. Remember North Korea? was put on that travel ban. How many North Koreans have come to the United States? Well, George W. Bush signed the North Korean Human Rights Act in October 2004. Up until 2014, there were 170 North Koreans who have fled to the United States. So yes, that comes out to, you know, 21 a year. So 300 Norwegians, 21 North Koreans, immigration, Donald Trump's number one issue. He's going to solve the issue by personally naming everyone that he's thought about or made a policy about. I guess he feels he could solve the issue by really getting in there on the micro level and just knowing the first name of every immigrant that he has made a strict policy about. On the show today, I spiel about some science news in which uh, we debut a new segment, Point Counterpoint. You're not going to want to miss it. In fact, if you just let this podcast run, you won't. But first... My old friend, Dina Temple-Raston, covered terrorism for NPR. She's done reporting on big data. And now she has a new project. It's with Audible, a podcast series about the mysteries of the teenage brain. What were you thinking? We'll find out from Dina right now. What?
What were you thinking? That is the question that's asked for a small mistake or a huge gap in understanding. What were you thinking wearing that dress? What were you thinking going for it on fourth and two? What were you thinking letting Michael Wolf hang out on your couch? But what were you thinking is a new Audible series, which is, come on, it's a podcast. Dina Temple-Rastin is the executive producer and the reporter. And she doesn't just ask, what were you thinking about that fashion faux pas? What she does is she looks at the most seemingly inexplicable acts of human behavior, from terrorism to school shooters to suicide contagion. And what she finds, fascinatingly, and the great thing is she's here to fill us in on it, but what she finds is that the question, what were you thinking, assumes that people were thinking. It turns out they were often guided by mental processes that I wouldn't exactly call thoughts. Hello, Dina. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. This was great. I love the series. You organized it by topic, and I mentioned a few, school shooting and terrorism. You could have organized it by part of the brain. I think the amygdala plays a big starring role. Tell me about (laughs) this almond-shaped organ. So what we did is we, we found kids who had made specifically poor decisions, Thing, poor decisions that just about everybody would agree. If you decide to create a giant uh, bazaar or marketplace for the dark web, most mm-hmm. people would agree that that's a bad decision. If you decide to join ISIS, most people except for ISIS would – think that that was a pretty poor decision. Even Al-Qaeda would think that that's a bad decision. Uh, Actually, Al-Qaeda would think (laughs) that was a bad decision. Uh, If a lot of your friends are committing suicide, we went to Colorado Springs where there's a suicide cluster going on now, and you do the same sort of thing. Clearly, I think people would agree that's a bad decision. Shooting up a school, bad decision. So what we wanted to do is explore those bad decisions and see if we can go beyond just saying, hey, it's hormones in the prefrontal cortex. Uh, We look at the insula, which is uh, where empathy is. And apparently during adolescence, and a lot of this is very preliminary, they're trying to do as much research as they can on this. But during adolescence, it's on hyper alert. Mm -hmm. So that may explain why you want to save the mountain gorillas when you're 16 or why you become a vegan. The amygdala, it's the fear response in the brain. They have found that if you are constantly bullied, physically bullied, not just on online, that your amygdala changes, that its response to threat changes. There's something called the basal ganglia, something in the adolescent brain and our regular brains. But during the adolescent brain, it's sort of learning when to turn on and off. And it has something to do, they think, with gaming addiction. Or actually, gaming addiction isn't an addiction, as it turns out. It's an obsessive-compulsive disorder. Yeah. In all these different cases, we look at a particular part of the brain that may have played some role in these poor decisions. And then we go somewhere in the world where they are dealing with these different adolescent issues in completely innovative ways. Uh, South Korea uses virtual reality to basically put a new input into the brain and rewire it. And and in fact, what they do, which is really quite amazing, is they input your mother's voice that says, I don't want you to play games anymore. I want you to be a good boy. Now, the question, of course, is if you can't stand your mother. But also in South (laughs) Korean, it sounds really much more demanding than sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, or if you can't stand your mother, which, of course, I asked, um, (laughs) they put your own voice in. So it's almost like they're inputting your conscience. I would suggest Morgan Freeman or whoever is the equivalent of Morgan Freeman. Yeah. I don't know who that is in South Korea. (laughs) Yeah, but it's got to be. It's it's probably Morgan Freeman. I'll call the guy. I'll ask him. I'll ask him. So episode, this is all fascinating. Episode one, it deals with a terrorist, a teenage terrorist. You are an terrorism, anti-terrorism correspondent for a long, long time. Is that how you got into 
the subject matter? Uh, partly. What happened is that, so I was NPR's counterterrorism correspondent for more than a decade. And over the course of that time, I was um, talking to terrorists who would join al-Qaeda, would-be terrorists, alleged terrorists, and their families. And then it sort of morphed into ISIS. And the people who were joining al-Qaeda were in their late 20s, mid to late 20s. But the American kids who are joining ISIS are 14, 15, 16, 17 years mm-hmm. old, which means that's not an ideological decision. That's an adolescent decision. And there would be these moms weeping in front of me saying, why did my child do this? We're not particularly radical. We're, in fact, not particularly religious, over and over again. And again and again, I would basically extract these stories from them in the way that we do and have nothing to give back. Yeah. And the answers that the experts gave you were, were based on ideology, that they were captured by grievance? What, what was the answer? Well, I think when it was al-Qaeda and particularly post 9-11, I think it was ideological. You knew what you were getting yeah. into. But when it comes to ISIS, it's just um, the person that we talked to for this episode was a kid who tried to join a, about a month after he turned 18. And this was what year? 2014. So yeah. it was before... So the, kid was, the kid was like four years old when 9-11 happened. He probably didn't even know what 9-11 meant. Yeah. And I don't think that... I think most people see ISIS and al-Qaeda as very separate things. Yeah. yeah. And particularly at that time in, in May. So this is 2014 because ISIS is just starting to rise. And at the time, there was a feeling that ISIS was, you know, freedom fighters. They mm-hmm. were fighting Assad. Everybody agreed that Assad was bad. This is what's going on for this main character, Abdullahi Yusuf. But what makes him so interesting is that he was a football player. So... He was assimilated. I mean, if you think about it, he was one of two Somalis in Minnesota on the Burnsville High School football team. And football ends. And he suddenly cast adrift. Yeah. So he had all these friends, um, all white friends, right. mostly. And, and then he's and cast not just friends, a team, uh, a purpose, physical activity. Band of Brothers, Sure. It. They yeah. actually wore T-shirts yeah. that said Band of Brothers. So then he sort of drifts back to the Somali community and he ends up being recruited by guys who are all thinking that they're going to go to Syria and um, be heroes. What's unusual about the story is it's the first time you hear in completely unaccented English a kid who sounds just like your kid who fell into this. Mm-hmm. One thing they say is hesitation to them means that you're not a true believer. So if you if you get the message and it resonates with you and you sit back and lollygag, you know, you're not you're not on the right path. So I think that And it had much more to do with belonging than ideology. So what's the brain function? What's the part of the brain? Uh, well, so there's a part actions. of the brain. Well, I, I have to say that we didn't stick any of these kids in an MRI and mm-hmm. actually uh, make sure that we were picking the right part of the Not brain. Not great audio. <laughs> <laughs> it's just thumping. So the part of the brain is something called the insula. And the insula is actually where empathy resides in the brain. And researchers are starting to think that during the teenage years, the insula is sort of on hyperdrive or overdrive. Yeah. And it's the reason why um, partly that you – Maybe in your teenage years, decide to love the mountain gorillas or, or go and save them. Why you want to save the whales. Why you start becoming a vegan. Sure. It's just you have this incredible empathetic moment, right? And and I, I actually talked to a, a neuroscientist who's really awesome. His name is Robert Sapolsky. He's out of Stanford. He thinks that the reason why this happens is because you're opening yourself up to everything as coming into adulthood. And he laments that the fact that as you get to be an adult, you find excuses to not save the whales. As your insula goes down to its regular level, don't save the whales, eat meat, and too bad about the gorillas. Yeah, but also don't join ISIS. 
Right. But if I, if you're joining ISIS because you want to belong to something yeah. and there's a very adolescent need, we I think we've known that for some time, that you want to belong to something, then that kind of changes the tenor of the entire discussion about ISIS. Right. We might say if you just stop and thought or he failed to think about the consequences – That's not really accurate, though. It's not that sitting him down and saying, really think about this, really think about this would have worked. He had a different process. I mean, if thinking is all the the sum total of what's going on in your brain, there was a lot of stuff going on in his brain that was leading him to that, what we as removed adults would consider a bad decision. But that's exactly the point of the podcast, right? Because let me give you an example of of one of the things that really struck me is we did a, a story in Colorado Springs about suicide contagion. And we were talking to someone, and we thought she'd just left a friend, uh, that lost a friend. And the more we talked to her, the more it seemed like maybe she had actually attempted suicide as well. So I turned off the recorder, and I said, look, do you know very much about your brain? And she said, well, you know, they say hormones, and mm-hmm. I make bad decisions, and I'm impulsive. And I said, well, so there's something in your brain called the um, uh, ventral striatum. And the ventral striatum is this part of the brain that sort of is a second rate decision maker and it helps the prefrontal cortex when it's wiring up and it's terrible at assessing things and it tends to worst case things this is what they think through research okay they associate that with you know you hear about every adolescent being morose and negative and i'm a jerk and he's a jerk and my life is over and you know every breakup is a terrible thing this is the ventral striatum doing a really poor job And the ventral striatum, they think, has something to do with these very bad adolescent decisions when it comes to teen suicide. So I laid this out for this person that we were talking to, and she looked at me, and she looked so relieved. And she said, oh, my God, I'm not crazy? Yeah. Yeah. And I said, no. And she said, everybody is having this problem? (laughs) And I said, well, a lot of them are, yeah. And she went, it's such a relief. And that's what we were hoping to do in putting this together, that if you know the insula is on hyper alert, now you know this is why I feel so empathetic with this issue or that issue. You know, if you know that your amygdala, if you were bullied, is more likely to react violently to threat, then you know when you get angry yeah. that maybe something else is going on. So when we quote unquote grow out of it, does the shape change? Does the does the connection, connective tissue among different parts of the brain changes? What changes to allow us to grow out of it? This is the most fascinating part. Now, I'd always heard that the prefrontal cortex wasn't developed, which gave me the sort of sense of feeling, oh, it's growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, your prefrontal cortex is fully grown by the time you're eight years old. So it's not growing. What is happening is that the connections between different parts of the brain are improving. Something called myelination happens. So the best way to think about it is, you know that insulation you can strip off a wire? Mm -hmm. So white matter, myelin, is like that insulation on the wire. And that insulation on the wire helps things pass more quickly, right, more efficiently. By the time you finish the myelination process, you're actually making decisions 3,000 times faster. Neuroscientists just marvel at this idea of myelination because what's happening during adolescence is you're not just adding connections, you're very importantly taking them away. So in other words, the Teletubby song that you was so important to you and is still important of to you, course. I'm sure, Mike. Um, Tinky winky, <laughs> la la, po. Okay, just hum quietly Say to yourself while I make my point. Hello, hello. <laughs> Sorry. Teletubbies, okay. Okay, Great. so... 
uh, obviously that's still very important to you. <laughs> yeah. And there's something else even more important that you aren't doing as fast because you saved the Teletubbies. Yeah. But basically what happens is the brain prunes back what you don't need. So the instinct to uh, suckle looking up to your mother and grabbing her hand before you cross the street. These are all things, for the most part, you don't need anymore. So as a result, your brain prunes them back. And by pruning that back, you are making more efficient connections. And it allows your brain not to go through a million different things before you get to the place you need to go, but in fact, go straight there. The uh, analogy that that neuroscientists don't love but really makes sense to me is um, do you remember old radios when you used to tune tune them in mm-hmm. and you'd get static and mm-hmm. it wouldn't be very clear but once you'd tune it in you'd get crystal clear music or talk or whatever it was that's sort of what's going on in adolescence that the reason why sometimes they make bad decisions is that there's so much static going on that they aren't tuning into what the good decision is and if you talk to most most psychologists and most neuroscientists they'll tell you that adolescents are perfectly capable of making good adult decisions but that static is what is getting in the way for example they've they've proven that uh, uh, kids make particularly, or adolescents, uh, 13 to 24, make particularly bad decisions when they're around their friends. Uh, and well, they make... Trevor, I mean, that he's a, he's a no good man, of course. <laughs> but they do that because yeah. there's essentially more static. Yeah. There's more input going in and they can't clear out what the positive input should be. And where this all ends up is kind of, and it's not where I expect, I'm from Northern California, so this is the last place I expected to end up, but it ends up in mindfulness. The idea that you can have kids focus down and make – take a breath essentially before they make a decision. What were you thinking is the new Audible series. It is fascinating. Of course it is. It was uh, reported and produced by Dina Temple Raston. It's available on this site, audible.com backslash adolescent brain. Thank you, Dina. <laughs> You're welcome. It's always fun. And now the spiel. Let's go to science news. Antipodal science news. ITV reporting. The Great Barrier Reef has always been a place that huge numbers of green sea turtles call home. But they've got a big problem. Too many of them are female. Scientists who've spent years tracking their numbers off the east coast of Australia say that complete feminization of the turtle population is possible in the near future. And it's all because... Of juice boxes! It's all because of juice boxes! Estrogen! Okay, that's not really it. Let us hear from an actual scientist. And it's all because of the climate. Hotter temperatures means hotter sands. And because the ratio of male to female turtles is dependent on sand temperatures, we're now seeing on those northern beaches virtually no males being born. CBS reporting on the same matter put a more concrete number on this turtle phenomenon, more concrete than just virtually no males. According to reports, scientists found that female sea turtles outnumbered males 116 to 1. The turtle's sex is determined by the heat of the sand incubating their eggs. The warmer it is, the more likely the turtles will be female. This is obviously a dire issue, but on this edition of Point Counterpoint, We will be joined by a voice of dissent, someone who says this trend is not alarming whatsoever. 
He's Louie, the male Australian sea turtle. Woohoo! How are you, mate? I'm having a great time out here. Sure, not much chance of bonding with the boys. Talking about rugby or Aussie rules footy, or as we Australians call it, rules footy. Or as we turtles call it, rules weird non-flipper thingy. But I've got to say, I'm pretty psyched. Turtle Tinder has been pretty robust, if you know what I mean. Flipper right, flipper right, flipper right. It's a good time to be a male turtle around here. And now, with a counterpoint, I am joined by Rachel, the female Australian turtle. No, just no. This is hell. I don't know what your listeners know about turtle mating in good conditions. Let me read from National Geographic. During mating, the male will reach his tail underneath the back end of the female's, that's me, shell. He uses his long penis, which can be almost half the length of his shell. Yeah, sure, or maybe he just has a short shell. Anyway, the male hangs on for dear life for up to 24 hours, said Dave Owens, a marine biologist at the College of Charleston in South Carolina, or as we call him, Dave the Creeper with binoculars. By remaining attached to the female, the male can prevent other males from mating with her. Well, that's how it normally goes, but with only the dregs of totality to choose from, no, just no. Hey there, babe, I bet you find me irresistible. Not if you were the last turtle on Earth. I may be. Any chance you'd like to inspect the ratio of my shell to my... No, I do not. I will take up with a starfish or just join a religious order before I let these last few turtle bros fertilise my clutch. I've got approximately 2,000 eggs to hatch. Do you think God's gift to reptiles would make a good father? I thought we were amphibians. Of course you did. Thanks for turtle explaining that to me. Just get out. All of you, get out. And take creepy Dave Owens, marine biologist at the College of Charleston in South Carolina, with you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Louie. And join us for the next Point Counterpoint, where an F-52 fighter pilot reacts to the news that he's imaginary and a 14-year-old demands to be invited to the White House. And that's it for today's show. Louis was played by Louis Mitchell. Rachel the Turtle was played by Rachel Withers. I'm pretty good with the naming, aren't I? Pierre Bienname is our producer. He's a big fan of the basal ganglia. Of course, the cilantro ganglia tastes like soap to him. Senior producer Mary Wilson's insula has been firing on overdrive since she heard what I made Louis and Rachel say into those microphones. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has a totally normal insula. It's not adolescent. Yet he still loves the mountain gorillas. Saw them open for tune yards. I mean, they call themselves the mountain gorillas. Just one guy, but that guy's great. The gist. We are influenced by the small almond-shaped part of our brain. Wait, no. That's actually an actual almond. We've been getting all our advice so far from an almond. Oomperu dapperu dupperu. And thanks for listening.